Hello, I'm Micah Woods, Chief Scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center. Welcome to the ADC Double Cut, where I take another look, a second look, at some of the material that I've written about on the ATC blog, some of the things that I've been doing. And today, I'm excited to announce that I have a special guest joining me today on the ATC Double Cut. This is Andrew McDaniel, who is in Japan now. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Micah. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm in Thailand now at my home office, and I have to say that I am pretty excited to be recording this ATC Double Cut with you. This, The topic that I want to talk about today is something that I think is really important. I don't know if you happen to have read this post. It's a recent one that I did that is about recommending nutrient amounts or fertilizers by ratios. Did you happen to see this one? I think I did skim through that. Yeah, it's a it's a five minute read, and mm -hmm. it's something that might be a little bit dry, but I thought it's so important that I wanted to write about it. And I've done soil test reports for you um, mm -hmm. at at Kea Golf Club and uh, maybe even some other places where you worked in the past. Yep. And I've definitely transitioned the way that I make fertilizer recommendations where I used to recommend quantities of potassium or quantities of phosphorus saying, okay, for the next year, you need like one and a half pounds of phosphorus or something like that. Or for the mm -hmm. next year, you should apply three pounds of potassium. <clears throat> and now I've kind of transitioned to almost always recommending ratios now because I think that you might change how much nitrogen you put going forward. If, if, and <clears throat> Hey, um, so I, everything is fine there, Andrew. Yeah. It just got a little bit noisy outside. So I closed the window. <laughs> you got is that guy still string trimming and brush cutting outside. Yeah. He, he's trying to get some work done today. Oh man, you got to get out there and help him. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, the ratios that I recommend are allowing you, if, if you adjust your nitrogen rate up or down, it still guarantees that you'll be applying enough phosphorus or potassium. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've noticed that or if it makes sense to you when I make those recommendations. Um, I mean, have you noticed that I've kind of made that change to to often recommend ratios instead of amounts, and then does does that make sense to you, the ratios? Yeah, I have noticed that actually. Now, now, now that you mention it, yeah, you, you, you did change the way that you did that. I didn't, yeah, I didn't really notice it until you mentioned it though. But yeah, it, it makes sense to me, yeah. Because um, if you think about it, and I, I obviously think about this, um, continuously i guess or or repeatedly not, not continuously i i re i have to think about this again and again as i do soil test reports and make fertilizer recommendations and think about the optimum way to make fertilizer recommendations for turf grass and the thing is if we are measuring the quantity of nutrients in the soil at let's say a date in 2021 last year let's say we make we measured on May 15th in 2021. And then if we measure the soil nutrients again on May 15th in 2022, we can see how those nutrients have changed and mm -hmm. how much those nutrients have changed must be related to how much of those nutrients the grass used and also how much of those nutrients disappeared from the system in terms of leaching or how many of those nutrients were added through something like irrigation water or added as a surplus as fertilizer or if the nutrient was added at a deficit in terms of fertilizer meaning the grass was using more than was added as fertilizer we would expect the soil nutrients to change in a certain way if mm -hmm. if we've added a surplus and it hasn't leached we would expect the soil nutrients to go up and if the amount added was a deficit and it did not accumulate from irrigation water or something like that, then we would expect the soil nutrients to go down. 
and by looking at how it changes over time, we we can then say, okay, if it changes over time in a similar way for the future, then this is the type of ratio we should apply in order to ensure that the grass gets 100% of what it can use. And it just makes sense to me to incorporate what's happened historically and consider how much the grass could possibly use in order to get really accurate with the amounts that we recommend. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a nice post that I would recommend that people have a look at. I'm going to um, scroll down. This particular photo that I'm showing, this is a little bit of a thatch layer. I think this was sodded creeping bank grass and it uh, was maintained at a relatively high height of cut, but it grew a nice root system with a zero, zero, zero fertilizer ratio. That was some grass that got uh, no NP and K from the time it was planted. It was six months old. Wow. And it, so in that case, if you're already, I mean, if you've already got enough, you don't really need to add any phosphorus or potassium. And that's where soil testing can be so useful. It's just finding out if you've got enough. And I think, um, so I, it's not so exciting to talk about this, but I think it's something that's, it's only a five minute read and I would encourage people to read it and understand it because mm-hmm. if, if you have a soil test where you've got enough phosphorus and you've got enough potassium and you get recommended an MPK ratio of one to zero, one zero zero, um, I don't mean that you you have to go out and search for an actual fertilizer and search for a fertilizer product that has an an analysis of one zero zero. What Mm -hmm. I mean is you can apply anything that has nitrogen in it, but you don't need to apply any phosphorus or potassium. So that would be like a 2100 or a 4600 or a 3200, 1500, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I have had some questions. Uh, when I make a recommendation like a, a 6 2, 3 ratio or an 8 one, 4 ratio, sometimes people think that I'm recommending that they need to go find a fertilizer that has that exact um, elemental mm. analysis. And mm. I, I mean a ratio. And so I've sometimes tried to express it when I'm writing the reports. If, it, if it's like an 8 one, 4 ratio... I've because I've realized that some people get a little bit confused with that. I'll say, okay, you should apply P at 12.5% of the nitrogen rate and add potassium at 50% of the nitrogen rate. Because if I talk about it in those percentages, it's the same as 814 would be the same as uh, 100, 12.5, and 50. Why did you change the way you did this? Because if I recommend an absolute amount, it doesn't match. I don't know how much nitrogen people are going are going to apply. Okay. So, for example, let's say there's a golf course in Manila. Okay. You and just say Manila apply, apply so many grams of potassium this year, and don't worry about how much nitrogen they apply. That's well. That's that's a very good question, and I'm I'm glad you asked it, and. Um, I'll close that screen and bring us up to so I can talk with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, everybody, I'll put a direct link to that post in the description so that anybody um, who's interested, and I hope some of you will be, you can read that post. The, so your your question is, why did I change to do these ratios instead of recommending, for example, add eight grams of potassium per square meter in the next year. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason for that is because I don't always know how much nitrogen people are applying. And I certainly don't know how you might have to change the amount of nitrogen that you'll apply in the future. So I, I can know, for example, how much nitrogen somebody applied in the past year, if I ask them. And I, I might ask you how much nitrogen you plan to apply in the upcoming year. But in some cases, I don't know. So let me take a case of of a golf course in the Philippines that I recently did a soil test report for. And that course has Bermuda grass grains, Tiffigal 
ultra dwarf Bermuda grass grains. And I don't know if they're going to be applying 20 grams, which would be four pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet. I don't know if they're going to apply. I mean, realistically, I expect they could be applying anywhere in the range of 20 to 60 because okay. I, I would be surprised if they're applying more than 60. Um, and right. I would be sh shocked if they're applying less than 20. But the problem is the grass is going to grow about twice as fast if and use twice as much potassium if they use 40 compared to 20. If we assume okay. that it's perfectly efficient, it won't be. But you could <clears> say conceivably they could be growing three times as much grass if they're, if they're applying 60 grams. And that means they'd need three times as much potassium. But unfortunately, um, I don't... With, with some of my clients, we're in close communication about some other maintenance practices that they're doing besides just looking at their soil test results. So I can easily... Um, I know like what products they're using and how much uh, phosphorus they applied and when and, and nitrogen and everything. So I can be a little bit more specific. But when I don't know the range of nitrogen there that they're applying, I can make a really accurate recommendation based on ratios. Mm -hmm. Because I know that if you have that much potassium in the soil, so long as you're applying in a certain ratio with N, now you can apply 10 grams of N, 20 grams of N, 30 grams of N, 40 grams of N over the upcoming year. And I can be confident that I'm making a, a fertilizer recommendation that uh, is not excessive, but it's guaranteed that you won't have a deficiency. That so, makes sense. Yep. I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad that that makes sense. And that's, that's why I'm doing it that way. And I, I've been doing that. And then the other question comes up as I, um, well, I, I, as I was saying, I, I was making those, uh, recommendations where I would say like an eight, zero, three, eight, one, four, eight, two, five. And the problem is some, some people were getting confused and thinking I'm recommending that amount of fertilizer. So, um, I've, I'm doing percentages. Do you think percentages, which are, are they interchangeable for you? Or do you think uh, ratio might be a little bit easier or is percentages clearly easier? Yeah, I think, I think the ratio would, it seems like it would be more clear than doing percentages. Yeah. Yeah. I would stick with the ratio. Okay. Well, I, I tried to explain I prefer, it. I would prefer the ratio. I, it, it could be different. Yeah, I guess maybe I could do both. I've had people. some people tell me, make the soil reports longer. And I, I already think that the soil reports are quite long because they have uh, text and they have charts and they have uh, historical data and all kinds of stuff that I've had people say, just make the charts bigger, make them longer. <laughs> I'm just, I'm scared that people will be printing these out and have 30, 40 page soil test reports that uh, would just be miserable. So I tried to make it as simple as possible, just condense it down to these ratios. But I think I might, um, we'll see. I'll, actually, that would be good for a poll. I'm gonna take a note here. Uh, in one of my upcoming newsletters, I'll do a poll and ask people which makes more sense. poll about ratios versus percentage or both and I just got I I do it this way because I got more and more uncomfortable recommending exact amounts mm -hmm. when um, if yeah I mean if people are are applying if they happen to be applying a different rate of nitrogen than I expect they are, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden my my exact recommendation wasn't so good anymore. Right. Okay. Um, and then then I also want to re recommend. Uh, I I prefer. I much prefer to do this. Uh, let's see where are we at. I just stopped sharing my screen. So now we're back. Um, I recommend, or I prefer doing this in terms of elemental 
amounts in, in terms of actual P and in terms of actual K because the soil tests, when you get a soil test done, that's reporting how much P is in the soil, how much K is in the soil, phosphorus and potassium. It's not telling you how much P2O5 and how much K2O are in the soil. And for me, the easiest way to do this is to work with the elemental amounts, work exactly with P, work exactly with K. And then when it comes time to make the actual fertilizer recommendation, then we take the product that we're applying and make the conversion of saying, okay, this is a product that's, uh, let's say it's 60% K2O. If you're applying potassium chloride, I think it's 60% K2O. And then make the conversion down to whatever it is, like 48% potassium and mm-hmm. make the adjustment at the very last stage. But when communicating it, I prefer to stick with elements. But I know it's confusing, and I think I think when you're recording it, you're recording P2O5 I, and K2O. Yeah, I am. And I think most people do it, but that's, especially with phosphorus, it's confusing because it's more than a factor of two. Mm-hmm. So if... Yeah, and that's something that I tried to be really clear about. And I wish that I could just recommend phosphorus. That's that's what I often will do is just try to just recommend P. But with some of my clients, I expect they might misunderstand it. So I will then um, change that or, or write what the equivalent amount of P205 right. is. Write both, maybe, yeah. And write both, <clears throat> but... Um, it's important because you could be, you could apply, if you misunderstand that, you could apply more than twice the recommended amount. Or if you make a mistake in the wrong direction, you could be applying uh, half, less than half of the recommended amount. Mm-hmm. With, with potassium, it doesn't matter so much because K2O or potassium is 83% of K2O. So we're just talking here of, a difference of less than 20%, which is, uh, no big deal. But with phosphorus, it's more than a factor of two. So that, that can be a bit problematic. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's go to another post. I'm going to have to, uh, share my screen again. And the next post is a short one. Uh, is that sh- is that showing now, Andrew? Can you see that? Nope. Nope. Okay. I'm gonna activate it now. There we go. There we go. Talking turf on pulling <laughs> weeds. Now this was uh, this was a podcast that I did on on a pretty big time podcast. I think pulling weeds is one of the larger podcasts in the turf industry. You've got ones like. Uh, um, the talking greenkeeper, of course, with Joe Galati, which is a pretty big one. And there's some others that I, I don't listen to so much. So I don't know how big they are, but the pull and weeds ones, I think is pretty big because I hear about it quite a bit. And I know a lot of people do listen to that one. So when they Mm -hmm. asked me, I was in South Carolina and, uh, I, I had a chance to be on the show when they asked me to be on the show. I was like, yeah, let me try to fit that into my schedule because I would, uh, I would like to talk with those guys. So, but I guess you probably listened to this one. I did listen to that. You were quite busy in the U S huh? <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I made a round the world trip. I, uh, I hadn't been out of Thailand for a couple of years. It's, uh, during the pandemic, it's been quite difficult to cross international borders in some countries. And certainly in Asia, a lot of the countries, it's been difficult to cross borders. And it was always possible to leave Thailand, but it would have been complicated and expensive, I think, to come back. So uh, finally, right before the Masters, the, the travel restrictions got to the point that I thought um, it looked like it would be likely that I could come back, that I I would be able to make a a trip back into Thailand if I left. And so um, I I was very lucky to get invited to the Masters tournament to work there. And I thought, 
wow, that sure sounds like an attractive trip to make. Let me say yes to that. And I'd been invited to Ireland, so I said yes to that. And then I, I started looking at flights, and it just made sense to go around the world. So I flew to Ireland, and I went and saw my mom, who I hadn't seen for a couple of years. And cool. I went to Brookside Labs, which was awesome. Um, and I talked about a little uh, about some of this on the on the podcast, but um, that was my second trip to Brookside Labs in Ohio. And that is that ever an impressive facility? And they've done an expansion now, and they actually have a um, like a training room or a, almost like a conf a small conference center wing. Um, it's a it's a beautiful room uh, where you could have training and education and. Mm -hmm. I think it would be really cool for people who are interested in soil testing and how samples get processed at the lab to come to Brookside, spend a day there, and we could um, we could take a tour of the laboratory, look at the different machines, look at how a sample is processed from the time that it arrives at the lab until the time, like all the different stations and, and rooms that it goes through and machines mm -hmm. that it gets mm -hmm. processed on. And then we could also, we could be in the lab and also we could be in the classroom doing some education. I think it would be, it's something that I'm going to try to offer sometime because I think whether it's some of my clients from Japan or some of my uh, clients from other parts of the world, uh, we could set something up and say, let's, let's go to New Bremen, Ohio and, uh, and do this. And I've, I've been to Brookside twice now and I'm just, I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> so I did that, visited my mom, went down, and my brother lives in, uh, is it, I think it's Somerville, South Carolina, uh, which is just north of Charleston. And when uh, James Huntoon found out that I was going to be in South Carolina, he said, well, let's meet up. Let's play golf or something. I thought, awesome. Um, and can you show me some zoysia greens? Because I know they have zoysia greens down in South Carolina, and there's a ton of zoysia greens in Asia. And I wanted to see, I hear so much about the zoysia greens in the U.S. I don't think the climate in the U.S. is quite ideal for zoysia greens, uh, considering the playability challenges that you have with zoysia compared with Bermuda grass. So I wanted mm -hmm. to see what's going on with zoysia greens in the U.S. And it turns out that... Uh, there weren't a, a huge amount of zoysia greens that we could look at around Charleston, but we did have a chance to play Charleston Municipal Course. And mm. the host, the co-host of Pulling Weeds podcast, Alan Knight, was able to join our round of golf too, together with my brother. And there's a picture of us. Um, there's my birdie dance. I we. Oh, yeah. Mr. Huntoon took, you've seen that before, I think. And, uh, and many of those, yeah. Yeah. So there, I, I, there's my, there's my brother, uh, David, and he, he has a good look. He's got a, a nice beard. Have you met David? I don't know. I, I haven't met David. No. Yeah. So Alan's got a nice beard. He's here on the left. And then, uh, me, Mr. Huntoon, he's got a nice beard. I guess I was the only clean-shaven guy there. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so we, we, we played golf. And at that time, there was no talk of doing the podcast. But I told them what I was doing after I left Charleston. I was going to go down to Gainesville, Florida, and look at some grass there. Um, mm -hmm. And then I was going to go up to Tifton, Georgia, and look at some grass there. Tifton has a – it's a very famous – town in the turf grass industry because so many grasses have tiff in the name because they were right. developed at the research station there and then i was going to go up to atlanta and i met with ralph Keppel and looked at some grass out at east lake oh, and yeah. at the uh what's that uh the oh. yates course where they've yeah. got those zoysia greens and then i went then i was looping up to uh knoxville university of tennessee and then i was going to uh go back to augusta well it it turned out, and I didn't realize that Clemson was basically in between Knoxville and Augusta by car. So if I was driving that way, it would be easy to stop by Clemson. 
And Jim Huntoon told me the Walker course at Clemson has diamond zoysia grass greens. So I thought, well, awesome. Let me stop there and see those zoysia greens. And, and then it turned out that Tim Krieger, who's the executive director of the Carolinas GCSA and the co-host of the Pullin' Weeds podcast, he found out that I would be in the area. And then that's when they decided that we could have time to do the podcast episode. So they invited me and I thought, yeah, just so, so long as I get down to Augusta on time, I will be, be happy to record that episode. So that was really cool. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good podcast. I enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for, thank you for listening to that. I, um, I enjoyed being on the show and it was fun to talk with Tim who has some, uh, what he's, he's not really a grass guy. So he asked me some questions that I might not always be, <laughs> I don't know, not always hearing those kind of questions. Right. Yeah. What well, did so, you see anything in the, in the U S that like, any, sorry, anything, anything uh, anything that made you say, this is nice, this is wow, anything? Yeah, well, I I oh. saw a lot, and I've taken a lot of notes about it, and uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of pictures, and I'm, a, uh, I'm still kind of processing all of the things that I saw, but uh, I, I will say at uh, at Florida, does the University of Florida ever have a heck of a research facility for turf grass down in Citra, a little bit mm -hmm. south of Gainesville. That's just really impressive. And I got to meet Billy Crow, uh, who is uh, really an expert on nematodes, probably for turf grass nematodes the world over. I think he's, he's widely considered the uh, expert in that area. And I got to meet Phil Harmon, who's the plant pathologist, and see the very impressive disease diagnostic laboratory down at the university of florida and they have a training room down there too with microscopes and able to train you about the diseases show how they identify diseases and uh, that that also looked very attractive also and i thought after i'd been at brookside about two weeks earlier and then i found my and see that they have such a great training facility and they're happy to have people come through and see how the samples are processed then to be down in Florida, getting a tour of the nematode extraction laboratory, getting a tour of the plant disease diagnostic laboratory and seeing all the research there. It just, it impressed me with all the resources that are available. And, um, for, from my perspective, not being based in the U S I thought, well, if I ever was in the U S with a group of, uh, people mm -hmm. from, let's say from Thailand or from Japan or from the Philippines or, or from Europe or something who wanted to come over and do some education. Those are a couple of great facilities that would be fun to do a little program at. And unfortunately cool. down at Citra, it was raining. I've got a blog post about that, that, um, you might've seen some of the photos, um, where I was running across, uh, the, the plots <laughs> to get back undercover. Uh, so we didn't get a chance to see the grass so much. And honestly, it was still kind of cold down there. The grass wasn't uh, really coming out. Uh, I mean, it, it still looked like springtime. And, <clears throat> but it, that, was, that was quite impressive to see all the different grasses, a lot of different Bermuda grasses, some really nice um, St. Augustine grasses. And uh, there, there's a lot of nice variety in those. And it's, mm. it's clear when you... When you go to a research station like that and see all these different varieties lined up side by side, you realize how important it is to do local evaluation. Because um, I think, I think maybe I don't want to name n names, but some of the, because I because I might misspeak, um, mm -hmm. and I can't. Well, I'll name names, but I won't uh, say which one because I can't remember. Uh, but some of the, the top new Bermuda grasses that you hear a lot about are like Latitude 36, um, Celebration, not so new anymore, um, Tahoma, is it Tahoma 31, uh, Tiff yeah. Tough? Stadium, I think, is 
was stadiums of zoysia. Oh, but sorry. if if we just do the Bermudas, um, there's there's various new types, and it was interesting that um, they were saying that in Gainesville, some of the grasses that perform really well in places farther north and in places farther south don't do so well in Gainesville. So, mm. um, I, and I can't remember, I, I mean, I think I remember, but I don't, I don't want to misspeak and say that certain grasses were not good when they, when they actually were. So I'm not going to, uh, say what I, just in case I'm misremembering, <laughs> but it was, it was interesting, um, to see those grasses and there's huge differences between them, which means what I'm saying is it, uh, what my take home message from seeing that is, um, don't just buy a grass based on how it performs in some other part of the state or some other part of the world, but oh. ideally you would check how it performs at your site. And then I didn't get, because it was raining so much, we didn't have a chance to inspect the grasses so much, but as far, they do have a zoysia green area. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see the differences in seed heads um, because some of the grasses that I've heard really good things about, then I, I see it there and it's just like, kind of like blah. And, and it's just like, wow, that's got a lot of seed heads. That's, mm-hmm. that's not very impressive, but mm-hmm. they, um, uh, Dr. Kevin Kemworthy was showing me around and he said, yeah, you know, at this time of year, they haven't really been intensively maintaining that area. And, it, and so he's like, you know, maybe this is not too, uh, too realistic. I'm like, okay. And that's why I went on to visit, visit golf courses. So I could see how these grasses were performing when they were on golf courses. And then I went from there, from Gainesville, I went up to Tifton and it was amazing. I mean, the, the take home message for me there is like serious turf grass breeding is, uh, is incredible with mm. what, the variety they get for zoysias. And I'm pretty sure you've never seen anything like it. I'd never seen anything like it. So we see a lot of variety in zoysia around Japan. I mean, of course, living in Asia, traveling in Asia, this is where the um, the origin of these grasses are. So there's a lot of natural genetic diversity. So we'll see all different kinds of grasses. Like you remember that time we went down to Ishigaki and Takitomijima? And, mm-hmm. and Goto, Goto, right. And so even between Takitomi, they've got a certain type of, I mean, multiple types of zoysia, but, uh, what you'll find in the Goto islands is, is different also. Um, and just like, I mean, we'll find, remember that Noshiba down by the ocean, uh, mm-hmm. behind that, the first or second hole at, uh, one of those islands in, in Goto. So, um, and then that's totally different from that one we saw in town that's really fine bladed. So there's there's a lot of genetic diversity. But when I was at Tifton and they were deliberately crossing the zoysia varieties and getting seed and then planting those seeds out and then we're in a field with like a thousand or two thousand something some absurd number of individual plants grown from seed with wow. the same parents so some of those look like the absolute worst noshiba you've ever seen some of them um let's say the growth rate varies by like 5x um so some of them are like super dwarf and not growing and some of them maybe maybe it varies by 20x that i also saw um drones that they put up to to take pictures and it's all geolocated so they know exactly which grass is in which plot because when you've got thousands of them that you're evaluating it would be nice to know what your spring green up is mm-hmm. it would be nice to know what your drought stress is it would be nice to know uh what your ex- your growth rate is and so you see that but what i guess what was amazing for me is you could go have anything that looks like bad Noshiba to the most prostrate grass that's not growing up at all. It's just creeping along the ground and mm-hmm. kind of like a greens type from the same parents. And then um, it's just amazing to see those side by side. And, and then you're just walking through that field, just kind of going, wow. 
But I, I was talking with Brian Schwartz about that, and he said they'll look good this year, but a lot of these will be absolute crap. And he's like, we'd be lucky if we can just get one or two possible commercial varieties. Wow. Because he said as they grow, he's like, at first you'll see these and you just you're just like wow this could be an amazing grass so you flag those and then you keep watching them but he said over time eventually things happen so um they uh they'll put them under drought stress they'll they they'll uh basically they just irrigate to establish them and then they stop irrigating them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then they'll have large patch and dollar spot and all these things and he showed me the various stages of how that goes and they so we did that and then we looked at some of the new bermuda grasses um and we looked at some of the zoysia greens varieties that he's been breeding there that are not commercial yet and then we also looked at primo prism laser um diamond those uh those varieties that are commercially available so and and we looked at long grasses i I don't think I saw stadium there, which is uh, a more of an intermediate type, but um, we saw some that are, are kind of similar to that. And zoysia is pretty, pretty nice. As I talked about in the Pulling Weeds podcast, when they asked what's my favorite grass, if zoysia is, like, I think it has to be. I really like zoysia, and the reason is all this diversity, and you can right. get just some really amazing grasses. But I, I think zoysia is my favorite grass, it doesn't mean it's suitable to be planted everywhere in the world. And right. I was just in Spain and I, I've got some more videos and pictures of that. One of those is about what a, a, a failure Zeon Zoysia happened to be at that location. And it, um, I was there when they sodded it uh, in 2015 on, on some key areas, some pretty large areas. Mm -hmm. I was back in 2016 and saw pictures of the winter kill and um, you can still find a little bit of zoysia there. There's still a little bit of zoysia, Zeon zoysia there growing wild in mm -hmm. 2022. So that's uh, seven years after it was sodded. And it's, uh, it's way overgrown by weeds. It's just, it's just the wrong grass for that climate. And I think, mm -hmm. um, so I, I really like zoysia, but not when it's the wrong grass for a particular climate. And then, right. and that's why I'm interested in zoysia greens in the U.S., because I'm not quite sure, uh, especially when you push north, like I, then I pushed north, I went up to Atlanta and um, I saw there's a lot of test plots of zoysia out at Eastlake. So Ralph showed me those and some of those look pretty good. Laser didn't look so good because it just grew too slow. Mm -hmm. So it was getting, he was surprised that Meyer was growing into it um, because he, I think oh, he, he thought that... Yeah, I mean, Meyer was just growing right over the laser because the laser seems to have a higher heat requirement to grow. And mm -hmm. then Primo and Prism look pretty good. Trinity, uh, Trinity, he said, gets large patch there pretty bad. So that wasn't one. And and that's something where Trinity seems to work okay in Texas, but then he said in, mm -hmm. in the Atlantic conditions, it's just fired up with, uh, with mm -hmm. large patch. And I... I've seen it in some other parts of the world just have crazy seed heads to where you're like, this is just not a really good grass when it's throwing seed heads like this. Um, so uh, I think I think it really makes sense when, when working with grasses or planting grasses to evaluate how they're going to perform at your location. And then it was really cool. We, got, we went over to the Yates course, which just sodded uh, Prism last year. And that, that's another new zoysia. So I got to see that and I brought a putter uh, and, and rolled some balls and it, it rolled all right where there was grass on the greens. Uh, but unfortunately for, for an area that had been sodded, I was surprised that there was uh, still some bare areas. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's something that was sodded, uh, you know, 10 months ago. So you'd think you'd have a hundred percent grass cover. Yep. You would. And, and that, I mean, you've sorted some of Andrew, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Andrew manages Zoysia Greens at Keio Golf Club in Japan. And Andrew's, uh, I remember the back left area on 16 when you first got there, that had some sod 
that had been done, some sod work that was done before you got there, mm-hmm. I, I think on the back left. And yep. I, I bet that took two or three years before that area got good or, or yeah, it's so difficult because it's not of the elasticity in it. Maybe it's not like bent grass for bent grass. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't knit like you think it would. So see that the, something goes wrong every time when you're trying to sod it. And it just, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Well, you know, that course in, uh, in Bangkok, Tana city, they, they just sawed it all their greens with, uh, yeah. M85. I think it's, it's not called what it used to be called anymore. Now they call it M85. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I had a chance to play there. And I mean, other than the usual things that you would expect from playing on recently sodded greens, um, mm-hmm. and the grain that you get on Zoysia and, and all that, uh, I was impressed with the quality of the work. It, it was really good. Um, and I think that one has a chance of success with the way they did it by, by that Zoysia sod being so young, because mm. you mentioned plasticity. And I think when it gets a little bit older, a little bit more mature, and then mm-hmm. you try to put it down, it's really, really hard to get it to knit together. But when right. it's young, if it's if it's immature, it's like you're halfway between sprigs and sod. Mm-hmm. And I think you're probably, if you're if you're at that stage, it it might grow together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's but, good observation there. So, we'll see. I'll I'll go see that one again. Um, it it looked good, but it it was so recent. I hadn't really had a chance to see it grow in. But th- these ones in the U.S., I was. Um, I feel sorry for the people that are managing it to have to deal with something that's so challenging um, because the whole idea I'm trying to understand, like, uh, you know, you could grow bent grass there. Or you could grow ultra dwarf Bermuda grass. And this, this goes for the courses I saw up in Tennessee around the Knoxville area too. And the question for me is why are people choosing zoysia when you can expect the zoysia when it's growing in the summer, it's going to have a slower green speed unless you do a lot of work. You're going to have to put a ton of fungicides, uh, fungicides to prevent spring dead spot and large patch. And because once those diseases happen, now if your grass is dormant and slow growing, good luck from those disease scars recovering. So I'm looking at it going, it's relatively high maintenance grass, I think, but they seem to be choosing it because they have the idea that it's going to be a low maintenance grass. Well, um, I don't, I didn't really see that. I mean, it might be low maintenance if you don't need good green speed in the summer, but you definitely have to prevent fungicides in like, it's easier in Thailand because in Thailand we won't have large patch because it's, it never gets cold enough. No mm-hmm. spring dead spot. So now we're dealing in, in a tropical climate. It's a different set of diseases that you'd be working with. So it's a little bit more attractive. And that's yeah. why I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, for the right climate, it makes sense. But you go in, in that part of the world. So I really wanted to see it. Because in, in the U.S., there's a lot of resources available for golf course maintenance, a lot of equipment, a lot of expertise, a lot of good products to use. And, uh, I was looking at, at those grains and just saying, Hmm, it's, uh, I I can see why people aren't really sharing a lot of photos and promoting, uh, Mm. success stories yet. Now they might, they might get those turned around, but I'm looking at it going, yeah, if you don't have a hundred percent grass cover, uh, that's still a bit of work to do. Yeah. That's a shame, huh? It's a shame, but I will say at the Walker course, I was pleasantly surprised to see uh, how good that diamond was. Um, mm. That that was quite good. And diamond, I've seen a little bit of in Asia. Manila Golf Club has diamond, and those greens are quite well managed, and that's quite good. And the um, the diamond at the Walker course looked good. And that uh, Dawn, I. Don Garrett, I believe the superintendent's name was, who he was very kind to meet me on short notice and, and show me around there. Um, and I was impressed with the way that he's maintaining those greens and not really doing anything crazy and the green speeds that they're getting and the type of traffic that they're getting and, and the way that he maintains it is similar to, 
to what you and I would have experienced in, in Japan. So it was good because I, I saw some pretty, um, some greens that were struggling and, and not quite to the level that you'd want them to be. Um, and then when I got to the Walker course, it was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm used to seeing. Okay. So, All yeah. Right, and then I, more time. Some of those new grasses will get established. Yeah. Might work out. You never know. We never know. It's pretty early, so we'll see. But I, I think, uh, I think they're definitely used a lot in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. but all those courses are like one, two, three years old. So we've yet to see like how they perform over time. And yeah. I, uh, I always predict that people will try to manage zoysia a little bit like Bermuda with a little mm-hmm. bit too much fertilizer, a little bit pushing the growth rate and a little bit being afraid that zoysia, cause people have the idea that zoysia is a big thatch producer. So people will be thinking, okay, I'm going to top dress these constantly. I need to really verticut them aggressively and core them in order to keep this thatch from accumulating. I'm afraid what people are going to do when that, what they're, what's going to happen is they're going to do that work. And then the grass is going to recover slower than they expected. Then they're going to hit it with some fertilizer to try to stimulate the recovery. And then two months later, when that fertilizer kicks in, they're going to realize they've got a bigger problem with thatch than they thought they did because they've just been pushing it. <laughs> and, or they'll make a fertilizer application. The grass doesn't respond to the fertilizer application visibly because zoysia takes a while for that fertilizer to kick in. So they might hit it with more fertilizer. And it will be like something that uh, if people do that, I think they're going to run into a lot of problems because you cannot cultivate your way I don't think you can cultivate your way out of a thatch problem with, uh, mm-hmm. with zoysia grass, especially on putting greens. It just takes too long to recover. At least with the, with the quality standards of greens that you and I would assess as being good quality greens, where mm-hmm. the ball's going to roll through, the ball's going to roll at an acceptable speed, and um, that's something that I'm quite picky about and... Uh, I don't just want it to look good. I want I want it to look good, and especially for the ball to bounce and roll well. So, it was a heck of a trip in the U.S. Thank, we'll we could talk about this all day. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, cool. That was that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm good trip. Yeah. I, well, well worth your time. It seems like. Yeah, and then I went to the Masters, which was awesome. I'm not going to talk about that. And then um, I went out to Oregon, and that was that was pretty cool. I I was mostly just doing family stuff in Oregon, but I had a chance to go see my old professor Tom Cook and see his lawn. And we talked zoysia there too. That's another place where zoysia is not good in competition. Um, he he showed me a spot in his lawn that he had planted zoysia. And he tried to let it grow. He also planted Bermuda and tried to let it grow. Well, the Bermuda actually did grow. That's a warm season grass. Mm-hmm. It's actually in a bit of shade there too. And the Bermuda grass has started from a small plot to now be uh, spread quite, mm-hmm. quite. I'm, I'm showing my hands like far apart. And the zoysia is just gone. There's no zoysia. The zoysia could not compete because it's just too cold there. And mm-hmm. especially when he didn't put irrigation, uh, after establishment, the zoysia just cannot compete. And Mm -hmm. I think it really makes sense, especially with the amount of money that you can spend on new grasses. Uh, you can definitely get your money's worth if you've got the right grass, but if you happen to have the wrong grass, uh, boy, that, that could be a costly mistake. So, and I, I know, uh, what year was it? 20, some five, six, seven years ago, we went out to uh, Totori Ken and saw a lot of the yeah. grass zoysia nurseries in Japan. And mm-hmm. in Japan, where almost everywhere uses zoysia, um, except, I mean, it's, it's on, it's everywhere in Japan. Golf courses must be 90% of the golf courses in Japan are zoysia. And any, uh, any type of lawn, for the most part, it's, it's zoysia. 
And the grasses there are chosen based on how they perform in the local area. And they're grasses that nobody's heard of, but people know that they work and they select the ones that work well and then uh, grow them and plant it out. Yep. Way we do Alrighty, it. Andrew. Well, it looks like the sun is going down. It looks like uh, I think your bento for dinner is probably calling your name. So uh, yeah. th this has been a, a great conversation. I appreciate you joining me here on the ATC Double Cut. And uh, maybe we maybe we can do this again sometime. You bet. I'll be available tomorrow. <laughs> I um, I will talk with you after I stop recording, and we'll we'll consider that. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew. You bet. All right, everybody. That was Andrew McDaniel. He's two hours ahead of me uh, in Japan, so uh, where I still have some light here in Thailand at the time that we are recording this. Uh, in the land of the rising sun, it's now uh, the setting sun. So Andrew is uh, is not uh, well. I'm just blabbering now. I I was talking so much about grass, and then I try to talk about normal things, and I really don't know what to say. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll put links to some of those posts that we talked about. I'll put links to those in the description. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. The, the idea of the fertilizer ratios is something that I think everybody should understand. If you want to make sure that you're supplying grass with the nutrients that it needs, making sure that no matter how much nitrogen you apply, that you won't have a deficiency, then that's a great way to do it. And that's the way that I've been making fertilizer recommendations and uh, it just seems to work really well. So thanks everybody for listening. I will be back again with some more uh, ATC Double Cut episodes uh, when I have the chance for ATC from Yantikau, Thailand. I'm Micah Woods. <laughs>